And as you're seated, please uh, pray with me. Uh, Lord, it's, it's, it is, I think, always the case that we are more needful of you than we ever fully realize. And, uh, you know, maybe, maybe most when we are going through the week-in, week-out uh, routine of coming to church and hearing a sermon um, and doing the things we do here, Lord, we are, uh, we are needful of you. We're needful of your spirit. Uh, to work through this word um, in our hearts, uh, that you may uh, do in us what Paul spoke of here, that we would find in you the, the, the treasures, the riches uh, that were hidden for ages, but are now revealed to you fully in Christ, who is in us uh, by faith. And Lord, I'm, I'm, I pray for those who are here, um, you know, kind of exploring these things. Uh, Lord, you are um, faithful not only to feed your people, but to those, to meet those who are um, skeptical, uh, wondering, um, maybe, maybe here because they want to be, maybe not. Um, Lord, you are gracious to, uh, to go after your people, uh, to, to give us comfort where we need comfort. Um, Lord, would you do that through your word, through the preaching of it here this morning, to the glory of your name. Um, to the good of the people gathered here, and even uh, to the good of our city and beyond. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, we're finishing up this first chapter of Colossians, which is really a chapter, you know, suffused with prayer and praise, uh, but one which pretty quickly by the end of it uh, becomes something of a party. Um, the first line in our passage this morning is Paul saying, I'm rejoicing right now. This is party language. This is celebratory language. I was reminded of C.S. Lewis saying that joy is the serious business of heaven, and Paul seems to be taking the position that it's also the serious business of the church. Uh, so we're going to look at that this morning. We're going to explore that along the lines that I think Paul explores it here of what it looks like to rejoice, uh, to rejoice in our suffering, uh, to rejoice as we serve, and to rejoice as we center, center on the gospel of Jesus Christ as his people. Now, I want to say at first, it's, it's tough to understand why Paul is rejoicing at all. Uh, as I read this, it reminded me of a time my roommate came back to our dorm, and he was giddy. He was bouncing off the walls. He told me that he had had the best day ever. And I asked him, you know, what made this the best day ever for you? And he said, I got to dissect a cadaver. My, my roommate was, is now a doctor. He was a pre-med student at the time. And, you know, of course, I heard that, and I thought, well, your best day ever is my worst day ever, um, which made, you know, the rejoicing incomprehensible to me. And it's a bit like that here. You know, how can it be that Paul is behind bars and bursting with joy? I mean, isn't it only true that joy can happen if, only if and when the circumstances allow for it? I mean, I expend, and maybe you do too, considerable energy avoiding difficult circumstances. Not only avoiding difficult circumstances, avoiding occasional inconvenience. Because I'm pretty convinced that maintaining optimal circumstances are critical to my happiness, right? I remember uh, having a friend in my car, this friend of mine from Switzerland, and I drove through a, a, an ATM um, you know, the drive through ATM, and I could hear him giggling in the, in the um, passenger seat. And I was like, you know, what's so funny? 
And he goes, oh, you Americans, you know, you don't want to get out of the car for anything, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, you won't even get out of the car to go get, you know, and your money. And I, was, and I told him, I go, this is exactly what is great about our country. I am air-conditioned, I've got my music, I'm getting money, and, and you know, bonus, no exercise, right? <laughs> um, I love my conveniences, and I love avoiding trouble. So how can it be here that Paul puts, you know, suffering and celebrating together? Is this a brief bout, you know, of behind the bars crazy, right? Is this a case of, of kind of gonzo macho martyrdom? Well, you know, I think, in fact, Paul would be the first person to say that prison is pretty terrible, and I'd love to get out of here if I could. Um, so I don't think it's, it's that. So, so how do we make sense of it? Well, we can begin by zooming out a bit to see more in this than just the life circumstances in the story of Paul so that we can see with it as he attests over and over and over again in this passage the love story of his Savior and of, and, and, uh, of the Savior of, of all the people, the church who Paul continually refers to here. That is to say the love of Jesus is alive and at work in the life of Paul so that he is doing this thing that I like to call accessing the present value of the gospel. What does it mean to me right now? How am I finding it to be true right now, trustworthy right now? How am I treasuring it right now? So, you know, I think Paul's doing that. Paul would say, yes, Rome has got me under its thumb, but he would also say, well, I was subdued long ago by the grace of Jesus. That's the greatest thing. Uh, has Rome got me in chains? Yes, but I was long ago liberated by Jesus. Has Rome got a hold of my body? Yes, but Jesus has my life. Is Paul enduring terrible troubles and injustice and pain and confinement and grief? Absolutely, but when he remembers and relies upon the reality that Jesus endured so much more for him, not only temporally in his salvation, but eternally for it. That shifts the narrative. That changes what suffering looks like. Right? Archibald Alexander was the first president of Princeton Seminary, and in his very first address to the graduating class of that seminary in 1812, he said something to the effect to these graduating ministers and, you know, that, that going into the Christian life, and maybe especially in ministry, was at the very same time to head for trouble. You know, and, and, and with trouble, suffering. But then he said something really surprising and I think incredibly wise. He said, when that comes, you know, don't be too quick to ask that the suffering would be removed. But instead, ask that the Lord would be gracious to sanctify you in it. You know, he wasn't telling them to look for trouble, but he was saying that when it comes, and it will come, don't be so quick to recoil from it or wriggle out of it or run away from it, but instead rely on the Lord to be at work in it. Knowing, as Paul puts it in Romans 5, that suffering produces endurance and endurance character and character hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because why? God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he has given us. But Paul says something, you know, more challenging here. This is one of the more challenging verses in the New Testament that not only is he rejoicing in his suffering, but actually he says, I'm suffering for you. 
Uh, he said this kind of thing elsewhere in, in Ephesians. He, said, he told the Ephesian church not to lose heart because he's suffering for them in his ministry. But, but what do you make of the idea that the purpose of his suffering is, as he says here, to fill up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church? That's very challenging. Well, we've already kind of begun to get our heads around Paul's understanding of suffering and seeing, you know, not just this life, but himself in the life of Jesus and Jesus at work in his life. You know, like the Colossians, he's in Christ. And to be in Christ is to be all in, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, in his return. The theological term for this is union with Christ, a concept I think we're probably more familiar with than we might realize. And, and, and I'll give you an example, the world of sports, sports fandom especially. And, and yeah, I'm going to let you in on something. I'm going to confess something to you. I am a long time... Boston Red Sox fan, okay? And, and, and even admitting that, just right here in front of you, right now, there are some of you here who might feel united to me and my people, and there are others of, of you, perhaps, you know, uh, fans of the New York Yankees who feel repelled from me and my people right now, right? There's something, you know, of the union that I have with my team and the union that you have your, with your team that we're feeling right now, okay? But anyway, I digress, I've been a fan long enough to have been part of Red Sox Nation before they ended their 86-year championship drought in 2004. My wife reminded me this morning that when that happened, our phone rang, she picked it up, and a person was just screaming on the other end of the line, Red Sox Nation, at the top of their lungs, and then they hung up. And we, to this day, don't even know who that was. But, but like millions of others, right, I suffered with them, Okay. When, when, when we were always getting close but losing, and I celebrated with them when we, when we won. And, but, but let's be honest, we didn't win, and we didn't lose. Nine elite overpaid athletes on a baseball diamond won, and those same people lost, right? But that doesn't matter too much because I'm in union with them. I'm in union with the Red Sox. Their victory is mine, their suffering is mine. That gives us a little bit of the flavor of what Paul is talking about when he's talking about bearing the afflictions, filling them up. Eugene Peterson said that one of the immediate changes that the gospel makes is grammatical. We instead of I. Our instead of my. Us instead of me. That's the framework Paul lives by as one whose whole life and ministry is bound up with that of the Lord Jesus, so that along with the whole church, which is his body, the church, which he repeats over and over again in Colossians 1, is bound up in the joys and the sorrows, celebration and suffering. We're in it together. I'm filling that up for your benefit when I need to, when God calls me to do that in my life. So to be in Christ means you never walk alone, so that whatever you go through, Jesus is not passively with you. He is with you in his promises. He is with you with purpose, working all things together for good to those he loves in Christ Jesus. Paul uh, uses a really vivid metaphor for this in Romans 8 to help us understand and think about suffering that comes upon us in this life. The, the metaphor he uses, he says, these are the birth pangs of the coming age. 
Um, and that's quite a metaphor, isn't it? I mean, there's, there's, no, there, there's, there's no greater joy than the birth of a baby. And yet, and I will admit, as I understand it, there are few greater pains than having a baby. Paul wants us to know that this is a life of birth pangs, a life that comes with wrenching contractions as we await and are squeezed into the life to come, being conformed into the image of Jesus. So when Paul says he's filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions, using a word for afflictions that's never applied to Jesus' redemptive work, but regularly applied to those who follow Jesus, he's not claiming to be able to add anything to what Jesus has already done fully for our salvation. That would would contradict everything he said already in this chapter. He's describing what it looks like to take up your cross and follow Jesus. He's describing the, the way of the cross in the life of the Christian. Jesus' body received the full measure of affliction on the cross for our salvation, even as his body, the church, is enduring affliction for its sanctification. Today, servant isn't above his master, right? And I have no doubt that Paul kind of loves and relishes the particular way he's able to take up his cross, to to fill up in his own experience some suffering to relieve others of it uh, by, by bearing with this imprisonment. I'm sure his opponents think that dude, Apostle Paul, is in jail. And, and with him, so is this gospel movement. You know, we've cut off the, bo- the head and, and the body will die. Except, I'm sure Paul's sitting back there going, I'm not the head. Jesus is. You know, I, I might be locked up, but the gospel can't be locked up. You can cage one member of his body, but the head lives and reigns forever. And even as his body suffers, you know, God uses it for his glory. Causes us to thrive in the life of Jesus, right? You can't get the baby without the birth pangs. You can't get resurrection without death. So God is gracious to use the trials and the tribulations and the losses and the grief and the suffering to get into us that there's more to this life than just this life. I have a quote in the front of your bulletin. Eugene Peterson says, salvation is a far greater country than creation. Far greater. But still, even as I get this conceptually, if you were to ask me what I honestly want, (laughs) it's health, wealth, winning, and success. That's what I want. And yet, you know, I don't know about you, but when I consider the places in my life where God has been gracious to give growth, growth, basically all of it has come through difficulty, through loss, through trouble, through grief. Because those are the precisely the painful places where I remember that I am not Lord of my life, that I have to depend, I have to cry out, and God is faithful to meet me there. In fact, I don't think it's overstating it to say that that a determination to be insulated from want can actually cause you to forget where your true and everlasting wealth lies, right? I think it's likely that if we're bound and determined to have nothing to do with loss, we will readily forget where the real victory is in Jesus and that those who lose their life find it in Him. I think it's possible that in our determination to have our best life now, we can forget 
that as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You see, God allows these things so that we could be a people who could relish our life in Jesus, remember that our life is in Him, knowing, as we sing in in the hymn, my richest gains I count but loss, my glory all the cross. That's where the glory is. And I'm sensitive to this, and, and I want you to hear me on this. None of this minimizes or dismisses or sentimentalizes the reality of suffering. There's a lot of us in this room and watching at home that are, that are groaning under it right now, you know, that are, that are living with deep, terrible loss, which at this moment feels like too much to bear. I understand that. Um, and I want to say nowhere does the gospel demand that we deny the grief or move on from it or redefine it. In fact, if anything, the gospel tells us that the grief and the pain is actually deeper than we might really imagine, reminding us that this is not how things ought to have been, that suffering and death aren't natural, right? They're enemies. They're intruders into things that should have been, into the ways things should have been. And, and knowing that, I think, you know, will cause you to shed some tears, to grieve it more deeply, to cause you to have longings that go, that, that linger and go deeper and get you crying out, how long, O oh Lord? Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church affirming, we grieve, we really grieve. Adding, but not as those without hope. Because even as creation groans and the present evil age is in its death throes, Jesus lives and reigns and saves and sanctifies and he will return to his bride. And it it might be hard to imagine, but, but in fact, the gospel would tell us that there's a greater tragedy than what we imagine to be our greatest tragedies, whatever they may be. And and, and that, the great tragedy would be to go through this life thinking, imagining, this is all there is. This is as good as as it gets. It's been given to me to just endure whatever this life doles out to me as, I don't know, a random lash of a cold and indifferent universe, as maybe the wrathful lash of a cruel and indifferent God, or is just something like the inevitable, relentless clockwork of the natural world running us over, as it does with everything else where the strong eat the weak? That's the greater tragedy, to look at life like that. The greatest tragedy is to suffer alone and hopeless because you've believed there's no meaning in it. It just is what it is. But Jesus has been gracious to redeem us from that greater tragedy by conquering the ultimate tragedy, right? In sin and death and hell, so that the gospel story is always alive in my story, whatever the circumstance, allowing me to rejoice in him even as I suffer, because I know this isn't all there is. I know it's a birth pang. Now, no sooner is Paul done talking about suffering than he's on to talking about serving, Serving, too, in a cross-shaped kind of way, following the one who didn't come to be served, but to serve. 
and give his life as a ransom for many. His calling, he says, is to serve as a minister of the church according to the stewardship that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The, the greatest service Paul can imagine providing for anyone is to keep the story of Jesus in front of the church. And at the center of the church, he says, making God's word known, actually known, not just known, fully known. Certainly fully known in, in the whole wide world, he celebrates the fact that the gospels come to these Gentile Christians. But, but I think there's another dimension to it and to say that, you know, fully known in our life together so that we are always about the task of exploring the greatness of the gospel with each other. Seeing how it applies to every dimension of life. Paul really delves into this, exploring what it looks like to enjoy Christ in you as he's being made fully known among us. First, he says, you know, this is glorious. He calls the gospel the hope of glory. Hope. I think hope is that particular gift which works to always be steering desires and delights and trust back to Jesus. So, so that to whatever degree we're succeeding or suffering or are stuck somewhere in between, we're always coming back to seeing the greater glory in Jesus as, as best. The gospel, making God fully known, is glorious. The gospel's glorious. And Paul says the glory of the gospel is enjoyed by grace. He says Christ is in you by grace. He's been revealed to you to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of glory. And I think the way Paul puts this to these Colossians is actually pretty gracious. Because I think he's saying in so many words, let's be honest, none of y'all were looking for Jesus. Can you imagine he came to you, a bunch of Colossians? You, you were making offerings to the gods, you were doing whatever it is Gentiles do, Gentiles going to Gentile. And yet, God came to you, gave you Jesus by grace to save you from your sins, to give you everlasting life. He, he, he's given you a glorious gospel, a gracious gospel, and the result that I'm seeing in your life and in my life is growth. When, when you're about the business of making Christ fully known, always exploring the dimensions and the beauty of the gospel together, Christ grows in you and Christ grows among you. There's a kind of a subtle shift in the language here. It's easy to miss, but I think it's meaningful where at first Paul says, you're in Christ, and here he says, Christ is in you. Which is to say that the same Jesus you've come to know is coming to be known through you. Growing in you, growing from you. And, and, you know, I kind of turn this over in my head and, you know, we could, you can buy me lunch sometime and tell me if there's another way, but is it even possible to know Jesus apart from a relationship with someone who knows Jesus? Is that even possible? Is it possible to grow in Jesus apart from relationship with another person who's growing in Jesus? I don't think it is. Because the gospel that was revealed to you grows so that it is, it's revealed to others through you. I think this, why, this is why Paul gets really fierce. And, you know, translations don't always capture tone, but the tone intensifies here. He insists that it is him we proclaim. The church proclaims him, Jesus. And that might sound like a no-brainer because we have Jesus written on all of our materials and, you know, it's a Christian church and Christian churches proclaim Jesus, right? But, but I think... Paul's tone is so forceful here because he's actually identifying the church's greatest challenge. 
which is to proclaim Him. Because I think he knew then, he certainly dealt with this with, with the churches he was writing to, and I think it's true now that it is very, very easy for churches to chug along nicely with Christ-adjacent ministries, but not Christ-centered ministry, right? So that it's subtly our social activism we proclaim, you know, or our political advocacy that we proclaim, or our cultural engagement that we proclaim, or our therapeutic safe space that we proclaim, or our good advice for successful living that we proclaim, or even our love, for, our love for others that we proclaim. All of those things are, have their place and they're good in their own way, but they're Christ-adjacent, they're not Christ-centered, right? And, and, and I'm going to make a little confession. Um, just to describe how I think this can work from sort of, you know, me and my profession, I think Greg might agree with this, even though I didn't run it by him. You know, if you spend any time pastoring a church and you're getting to know the people, you can kind of get lured into this hubris, this pride of thinking, I know what these people need. I know what you need. Maybe, maybe I'll do a, a series on being a little less critical. You know, a little more encouraging. That's what you need. Maybe we'll do a series on being a little more generous. You know, or how to have a servant's heart. Or, or how to vote. <laughs> and making this all the more challenging is we can enter into a little Faustian bargain, right? Because I can do that, Greg can do that, and here's the thing, you might love it. You might begin to get a sense that your felt needs are being met. That the ministry is finally getting practical. That it's finally getting relevant. That it's finally addressing the headlines in the newspapers, or we don't do newspapers anymore, whatever. But in doing that, that Faustian bargain, which is, you know, the sin that is sitting at the doorstep, we forget, I think, what is deeply true of us and at the same time deeply tragic about us in that we're always looking for love in all the wrong places. We're seeking out life in that which does not satisfy so that what develops right under our noses is the subtle denial of what is always true of us, always true, that we need Jesus most. We need his gospel most, that we are prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. So that's Paul heightening the emotion here, getting insistent, saying, him we proclaim Years ago, I attended a party in Somerville, Mass., uh, hosted by some non-Christian friends of a member of our church. I didn't know these people and went to this party, and I had a great time. And the best part of that party for me was getting to know this, uh, the hosts of the party, who I just thought were a real delight. Um, and, and later on, I asked the woman in our church who had, who had invited me to attend this party, I, I, you know, who was their friend, I said, you know, have you ever considered inviting them to church? And she kind of sighed and she said, you know, it's so hard to imagine ever doing that. They're so deeply embedded in and committed to a worldview and a way of life that is opposed to a Christian worldview and a way of life. And, and she just went on to say, it just seems to me like there are too many hurdles, there are too many problems to be sorted out, there's too much for them to give up, they would have to give up their whole life 
in order to know Jesus. And, and I, you know, I understand that, but all I could say is that it is not given to us to sort all of that out. It's not, it's not given to us to sort out all the obstacles and to solve all the problems. It's ours to proclaim him. It's ours to bring people to Jesus, to leave them there and to trust him to sort it all out, right? Martin Luther had a great line. I mean, he applied it to prayer, but I think it applies similarly here. He just, he just says, pray and let God do the worrying, you know? Proclaim and let God sort out the problems. And look, Paul's not passive about this. He actually says he, he works really hard on this. He, he uses the language of, of kind of an elite athlete who's toiling and struggling, straining toward the goal, but, but he mixes it with, he says, you know, I do that, I feel that, I'm straining in that way. It's like an athletic enterprise, but I'm doing it as one who is deeply dependent on all the Lord's energy that he powerfully works within me. In fact, he says, two things will happen when you decide that your job is not to be a religious service provider or a religious problem solver, but instead to commit to proclaiming Jesus. He says that everyone is admonished and everyone is taught with all wisdom. Um, the language here, I'm trying to find it here, uh, it's not admonished, it's I think corrected or something like that. But you know, that word admonished, that concept, it sounds harsh, right? Um, uh, uh, but its literal meaning here is, is to put into the mind. It, it, ha it, has, it carries with it the idea of like getting thinking straight. Um, you know, I've run in circles who've said, you know, this is kind of what he's talking about here is to, is to be renewed, to, to be restored to gospel sanity. Allowing the word to work in such a way that we're able to go the right way, to reject the false ways of thinking and to, and to re-engage with gospel thinking. It's to allow the gospel to go to work in the totality of who we are and humbling us and challenging us and correcting us and redirecting us back to Jesus. And, you know, Paul takes a view here that admonishment isn't something some of us need sometimes, but he says three times, this is something everyone needs all the time. You know, last Wednesday, we spent some time in the prayer meeting looking, you know, praying. We have a time dedicated where we just pray for this church our life together, and we just zeroed in on Hebrews 3.13, where the writer of Hebrews calls the church to exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And it's interesting, you know, he doesn't say hardened by sin, hardened by its deceitfulness. I was really struck by that idea, that it's not just sin that hardens us, it's the deceitfulness of sin. If you, Few people wake up in the morning and say to themselves, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to plunge myself into evil, right? Few people do that. But we all sin, right? And, and, and why? It's deceitful. We sin because we love it. We sin because it's attractive, because it makes sense, because it feels good. It feels like it pays off. It's got promise to it. That's its deceit. So God is gracious through the proclaiming of him to admonish all of us with the gospel. Get our thinking straight. Call us back to gospel sanity, reminding us where our life is, clearing up the confusion, clarifying the distortion, identifying the empty hopes, running off rivals to the gospel. 
You know, following Jesus involves not just believing the gospel, it actually involves thinking the gospel. Because the gospel is opposed, he goes on to say, to what he calls here false arguments. What's an argument? An argument's a line of reasoning. It's an appeal to the way that we think things through. Faith and unbelief are opposites. Faith and reason aren't, okay? So everyone who receives the gospel, Paul just takes as a, as a given that we will have to contend with rivals to it. Not just alternative arguments. Again, the language here is really important. Plausible arguments. The deceitfulness of sin. Arguments which will be attractive to us, which will seem truthful, which will get you and me scratching our heads and going, you know, that actually sounds pretty good. And look, it's a a well-worn illustration, but I think it's so fitting that United States Treasury officers who are tasked with identifying counterfeits spend exactly zero time studying counterfeits. And they at the same time become absolute experts in knowing exactly what the real thing looks like. So that when they see the false thing, they know that's the counterfeit. And I think that's what's kind of being urged upon us here, to know the gospel inside and out so that we won't be taken by the counterfeits, to live it together, to come here and and, and desire to hear him proclaim, to explore it, to see it applied to every dimension of life. And, And in fact, Paul rejoices in seeing that among them, that they've got good order and firmness of faith in Jesus. He uses kind of military language here. He goes, man, this is really well organized and ordered, and you guys are ready to withstand whatever may come your way because you know the gospel. All this to the end that he says they're gaining maturity in Christ so that their hearts are being encouraged. They're being knit together in love in order to reach all the riches of the fullness of assurance of understanding. Again, it's hard to pick up on, but the tone intensifies even more here, probably because he knows that his heart and theirs is easily discouraged, readily feeling isolated because life is full of those kinds of troubles. Paul calls Jesus Christ the mystery of God, not so that we think of him as a clue about what God might be up to or as a decoder ring helping us to, you know, decode God's will for our life, but so that we would know that He has revealed the way to life and the way of life to us fully in Jesus, which apart from His grace would have been hidden, hidden to us. He wants us to know that Jesus is with us on the way, all the way, as the way, finding in Him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Famously, John Bunyan wrote a book about what it looks like to be on the way with Jesus called Pilgrim's Progress. And there's an episode in that story where Christian, the the protagonist of the story, comes upon two other travelers, um, one named Formalist, the other named Hypocrisy, both of them from the land of vainglory, all of them on their way to the celestial city. Although they didn't start the journey in the same way, Christian set off his journey through the narrow wicket gate, but formalist and hypocrisy didn't, and he gets curious about how it is that they got started on what he thought was the only way you could start, what he thought was sort of the starting line of the journey to the celestial city, and he he asks how it was that they didn't go through the wicket gate, the narrow, harder way, and they said that they'd heard it was too difficult, that it was hard to get to, and besides... They'd found a shortcut where you could just jump over the wall. And it wasn't long 
though, until they came to a hill. The name of that hill was called Difficulty. And at the trailhead, they came to the main trail, which was the designated way to go, but there were two bypaths coming off of that trail. The main trail was called Danger, steep and narrow, but the bypaths were called Destruction. And formalist and hypocrisy, figuring the paths would eventually meet, decided to continue on the journey as they'd begun, taking what looked to be easier, which they'd become convinced was the better way. While Christian took what was marked out as the way, difficult and trying as it was. And he never saw them again. The way, I'm afraid, is narrow and steep and hard. And as we journey on it, we don't go alone, but we're with Jesus and we're with each other, in him and he in us. It's not a journey without rest and refreshment along the way. The sorrows go deep, but so do the joys. And, and on that journey, we're refreshed here at this table, being reminded every week that, in fact, Jesus has made a way for us to that celestial city by going all the way for us, ahead of us, for our redemption in his perfectly obedient life, in his death on a terrible cross, in his victorious resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father where he will say later in this very, in this very letter, our life is hidden with him. Taking onto himself the fullness of the tragedy of sin for us so that we wouldn't have to bear it. Enduring the deepest grief so that we could come into possession of everlasting joy, bearing the full measure of wrath for sin that should have fallen on us so that we would have forgiveness and freedom and life. So as we come to the Lord's table, let's look to Him. And, and, and I would say lean on Him, knowing that He's powerfully at work to knit us together in love, to energize us to strive forward, and to cause us to rejoice and wonder at the treasures of the gospel. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, indeed, as you've told us, you are the way, you are the truth, and you are the life. Thank you for not just leaving us with a set of instructions, but for being in us, being life in us, for hiding our life in you, for leading us along the way, for bearing the fullness of our troubles, Lord, and for sympathizing with us as we, are, uh, as we groan, as we endure the birth pangs in this life. Lord, I thank you for um, the truth of the gospel. I pray that as we come to this table, we'd come looking to you. We, we say you need to have faith, and that is true, um, but we're not talking about, you know, heroic faith. We're just talking about depending on you, about trusting in you as we go along this journey. So Lord, help us as we come. Feed us here at this table. Feed us uh, for today and for the days to come. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.